Midnight in Karachi with Mavish Murad on tour.com. Joining me today is Hugo Award-winning writer Mary Robinette Kowal, who has also been the recipient of the Campbell Award. She's published a series of Regency fantasy novels, many, many, many short stories, and a whole bunch of novellas, the most recent of which is Forest of Memories, in which a young woman who deals in authentic life experiences finds herself cut off from the grid to which she's always been connected, removed from the rest of the world, and the unwilling guest of a stranger. There's no objective record of her story, so all we know is all that she tells us, and she tells us some very interesting things. Mary, welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Now, your latest work, of course, is the Tor.com novella Forest of Memories. Please tell me a little bit about this. Tell all of us a little bit about this, uh, where the story came from, how it came to be. Sure. So this actually has a strange, <clears throat> excuse me, a strange journey. It actually began in audio for uh, for an anthology that was a shared world anthology, the Metropolis anthologies, um, and. And I wrote it initially to reflect the fact that she was telling a story orally. But when I was talking with Lee about it, I, uh, Lee Harris, who's the editor, mm-hmm. we were talking about, you know, what it would be like to do this if it were not audio. How do you confirm that something is a single, unique account in the written record? And oddly, the uh, the old school typewriters are one of the things that you you can't uh, you can't duplicate. They they have unique fingerprints. In fact, people used to uh, the when when they manufactured new typewriters, they used to have to make a sample sheet, um, and that was one of the ways people would solve crimes is by comparing uh, typed letters to to these sample sheets and figuring out which typewriter actually did it. So so the idea that of using this old technology was uh, as a way of authenticating an experience was very interesting to me, uh, which entailed completely rewriting, well, I shouldn't say completely, mostly rewriting the story. Um, it's got multiple scenes that were not in the uh, in the audio version of it. And uh, and one of the things that was very odd was that I had to go back through and add typos. Right. Um, <laughs> some of the typos are completely legitimate, real typos that I made while typing, um, and others are things that I had to add to scenes that had been proofread. <laughs> well, I was going to ask how your copy editors uh, decided, you know, what was what. Um, basically, we told them to leave all of the typos alone. Um, they marked them. Uh, they marked all of the typos so that the next, so that the proofreader would also know that they were deliberate typos. Right. And one or two they flagged um, because they thought that it made it harder to understand. Uh, so we pulled those out. So far as the memories, and I'm going to use this word loosely, is futuristic to a great extent. I mean, the technology you write off is. It's not unfamiliar, but it's, of course, far ahead of, you know, where we are now, I guess, in a way, although not really. Uh, but it is. Yeah. But what it isn't, though, is Regency era, which your glamorous history novels are. The glamorous histories, I should say. The last book of that was Of Noble Family, I believe, and now Forest of Memories. Mm-hmm. In your short fiction, you write clearly all sorts of subgenres. But did you have to change gears, as it were, to make the shift to writing Forest of Memories? Um, not 
I mean, yes, I do have to shift gears, but I, I have to shift gears every time I'm approaching a new project. Uh, even within the Glamorous Histories, uh, each of those books, while they are set in the Regency, I'm using a different subgenre for each of them. Um, you know, the first book is very much just Jane Austen with magic, but the fourth book, for instance, Valor and Vanity, is a heist novel that's disguised as a Regency romance. So there's there's certain genre conventions that I, I change gears with a lot. Um, the the thing that was so that that aspect is something that is familiar and comfortable for me. I, I've I've been a freelancer and, and in my puppetry life I was always having to to change styles to match whatever it was that I was doing. And the thing that was harder with Forest of Memories was um, having made the decision to tell a story about something that was uncertain. Um, the thing that was difficult was resisting the urge to answer all of the questions. Um, and that was because, you know, your training is so much to to not leave the reader with giant questions about, you know, why why was why why was this guy looking at deer or um, you know, what was the secret plot? I I I have to I had to really it was really hard to not want to make sure that everything was completely one hundred percent clear and that that just it just went against a lot of training, but it was right for the story. Is there more to this story? Can I ask that right now? There is. I, I did actually come up with a lot of the answers. Um, like, I, I know what's going on. Um, I totally know what's going on. and, and You're just keeping it from the rest of us. Right. Right. <laughs> it's not part of the, it's not part of the, the record. Um, and my, my protagonist, you know, the person who's actually telling the story, she doesn't know the answers. I had to know them in order to make sure that, um, that Johnny, the other the other speaking character well I shouldn't say the other speaking character because there is an AI but the other the other human character um, uh, I, I had to know what his motivation was and what was happening in all the times that that she was not present to witness so that I made so that it was internally consistent um, and also I, I very much believe that if you do not know why a person is doing something then it becomes very difficult to write them believably. Right, without knowing their motivation. Right. Now, you were writing fa Regency fantasy before it became its own genre, I believe. It's interesting how it's taken on this life of its own, isn't it? What do you think the yes. major appeal is? I think so. I think a lot of it has to do that we've, we've actually hit a couple of um, anniversaries for different Jane, Jane Austen uh, properties, which right. always brings people, you know, brings a book back into public consciousness. For me, though, the, the thing that I find most appealing about the Regency and one of the reasons that I think it is so, um, people are so, it, it resonates so much now, uh, is that there are a lot of things that were happening in the Regency that resonate and mirror things that are happening now. For instance, um, you know, there was... the we have the Napoleonic Wars going on. And one of the side effects of the Napoleonic Wars was that you had a great deal of movement within classes suddenly happening. 
um, people were able to transition from from middle class to upper class and from and, and you know and and rise all along the gamut. Uh, you also had a lot of race issues happening during right. the Regency, and people tend to not think about that and Jane Austen, but they also forget that she was writing for contemporaries, and a lot of the references that she put in would have been blatantly obvious to her contemporaries, but to us, they just, you know, we just gloss right over them. But the fact is that that these were issues that people were thinking about, and 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 were present in the day. So when you're starting to write modern books set in the same time period, you're able to use that as a mirror to things that are going on in, in today's modern society. Uh, women's issues, race, class, all of these things are just right there in the Regency. Uh, and, and that, I think, is one of the reasons that it's... It's very, uh, it's a very interesting and dynamic time to use. The other thing for me is that people were a lot more liberal in the Regency than they were in Victorian England. Victorian right. England had this really horrific uh, racist backlash, um, but the Regency was, uh, was you know, quite progressive. That that is when slavery was abolished in England. First the slave trade, and then and then slavery itself. Uh, so it, it is, you know, it's, it's a very, uh, very, very dynamic time. Are you done with the Regency era? Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, and yes, all at the same time. Um, You're done I, with these, I, this series? I am, I, I decided, um, I, as a reader, I get fatigued with a series that goes on and on and on and on. Um, and I get fatigued after about five books. So I decided early on that I was going to write a five book series. What I would love to do, and I've talked with my editor about this, is um, after I've had a chance to go do some other things, um, I would love to come back at some point and write some other books in this universe. Um, one of the things that we've talked about is a, a YA trilogy set at a, um, a school for uh, young glamorists. Um, right. And uh, that should be fun. Yeah, I would love to do that. Um, and but, you know, this is one of those things that there are so many books that I want to write um, that whether or not I'll actually get to come back and do this is dependent on factors that I have so little control over that I, I can't actually make plans. So what's your research process been like, both for the Regency novels and your short fiction? I cannot imagine what your search history must be like. It must lead you all over the place. <laughs> yes. Um, so one of the things that I recommend to anyone who's going to do something that involves research is that do not pick topics that you aren't interested in. Um, mm because you'll read a lot of it, uh, just a lot. Um, so one of the things that I'm doing is that I'm I'm researching things that I, I kind of want to be reading about anyway. Writing fiction sort of gives me the ability to scratch my, my research and history bug without actually having to have the, the rigor of being an academic. Um, 
What I usually do when I'm approaching a project is I do very broad research first, just to kind of get a, a, a big general overview. And honestly, I will often use Wikipedia for this. Um, it's not great for uh, for details, and there are often errors or biases in it. But but for getting a just kind of general overview, it's it's useful. Um, but even more useful is that there's a bibliography, and uh, so from that, once I've kind of done my general broad overview and figured out the areas that I'm going to need to focus on for the, the book, then I'll do something uh, slightly more specific reading, um, usually still in kind of the, the broad strokes. I don't do um, what I call spot research until much later in the process. So I will kind of get this overview, then I will do an outline, and I do outlines even for short fiction. Um, and then if there are things that I need to research that I'm going to need to know more about um, for plot purposes, I usually can spot that in the outline and I'll do a little more reading there. But all of the details like exactly what clothing someone was wearing in 1807, that I usually wait on until I'm pretty much finished with the book or a short story because it doesn't affect the plot and because I will, you know, I can easily fall down the, the rabbit hole. I'll, I'll sometimes allow myself to do that spot research during the writing process, but I, I'm not allowed to stop writing. So I'll, I'll, you know, be typing along and get to a point where I need to describe a dress and just do a square bracket description of dress in square bracket. And then when I, you know, my next break, I may go look up dresses. But, uh, but if I, it's very easy to fall into what they call world builders disease where you right. just spend all your time creating the world and never actually write the thing. So, well, I have another I, I question. I try to do it in parallel. I have yeah. another question about world building a little later, but before we get to that, I was fascinated to read that you created an Austin spell check. Yes. That's, that's um, amazing. I mean, who would have, who would have thought of that? Um, you did, of course. Yeah, I did. Oh. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not, I'm not the only person who's done this. Um, it actually turns out, I didn't know this when I did it, um, but it actually turns out that in the fanfic community, there are several different spell checks for different properties. There's, I think there's a Les Miserables uh, spell check and a couple of others. Um, but it, it actually, it sounds really, really daunting to create this thing, and it's actually pretty easy. So I have now done it for... Um, for the next, the next two books that I have coming out are, are also historicals, but not in the Regency. So I've I've created spell checks for them as well. Um, and and so what you do is you get a you get sample text. Um, in my case, for the Regency, the Jane Austen one, I I took the complete works of Jane Austen, and then I ran it through a concordance engine, um, which you can find online. They're free, uh, and that returns a list of words. And then um, you just follow the instructions for making a custom spell check dictionary in whatever program you're using, and you're done. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it that just makes things. Yeah, it really helps. And I, for people who have not heard me talk about this before, I do want to say that um, I use this as a way to double check whether or not the words exist. Um, but I do not confine myself only to words that Jane Austen used. Um, I just try not to use words that are anachronisms. And sometimes even there, like 
there are three anachronisms that I can think of off the top of my head in Glamour and Glass that I used because they were the right word and anything that was period correct would have just been confusing. Right. So you have to make that choice, of course, sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you're a professional puppeteer. I admit I have never spoken to anyone or met anyone um, who is of professional puppeteers, so I'm holding back talking with you entirely about puppets. Um, I'm restraining <laughs> myself. But I have to ask, was this something you were always interested in, you know, and what's your strangest puppeteering experience? Oh, boy. Um, so I was not, like, I, I mean, I remember doing puppets with my babysitter when I was really, really little, but that... The way all it kids not do, a, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but really the thing for me is that I was one of those kids who wanted to do everything. I wanted to be in theater. I wanted to be an artist. Um, and when I was in high school, a friend of mine was in a, a church puppet troupe. So I actually joined her church so I could be in the puppet troupe, which is maybe not the best reason, but it was it was just so cool. There were these puppets and it was fun. And I thought it was a great hobby. And when I went to college, I was an art major art education with a minor in theater and speech and I thought that I was going to be an art teacher who ran the drama department in high school because that was the closest I could come to combining everything I wanted to do right then a professional puppeteer came to see our production of Little Shop of Horrors in which I was the giant man-eating plant and I was like people pay you to do this they give you money to play with dolls (laughs) and pretty much change career choices on the spot Um, so, and, and then subsequently had like a 20 plus year career, I guess it's still going on. I shouldn't. So 25 year career. I'm not going to think about the math too much on that one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but strangest puppeteering experience. Um, you know, boy, it's funny because the things that are going to seem strange to me, are probably not going to seem strange to listeners. Um, but that's interesting, too. Some, yeah, I suppose so. Um, oh, boy. So one of the... I will digress slightly and say that there is there's an interesting thing and part of the reason I'm having trouble answering the question. Um, English is the only language that has a single word, uh, the single word puppeteer. Um to mean someone who both builds puppets, performs pu- and performs puppets. Um, all of the other languages, and I've, I've gone to, we, we've had, I uh, go to puppetry congresses, which are, are international things, and we have had this, this question a lot. Um, but all of the other languages, it's, you know, puppet performer, uh, puppet builder, puppet director there are specific words for these things so when i when we're talking about my strangest puppeteering experience i'm sitting here trying to decide whether to tell you something that involves me building something or performing something um i'm gonna go with i'm gonna go with the 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 most recent cool thing um which is i was i was recently uh last year i was a piece of pizza on a stick um and this sounds like, you know, not terribly exciting. <laughs> but it was a piece of pizza on a stick on Sesame Street. Um, 
And this was the first time that I had worked on Sesame Street. I had been in the movie Elmo and Grouchland, but uh, but not on Sesame Street itself. It's like the difference between being in the film of X-Files right. uh, and, and actually being on the television show. Right, which is uh, the real thing, on, as we all know. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. Thank you for understanding that metaphor. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so... So it was my first day, and I was assigned to be Oscar the Grouch's right hand, which was going to be really cool. But Oscar was in a non-standard trash can, so there was not enough room for two puppeteers. So I didn't get to do it. And it was the only thing I was scheduled to do, so I was just watching all day. Um, and someone looks over, and it's a very small community, puppetry. So everyone, like, even though this is my first day, I know everybody. And someone's like, this is Mary's first day on the street, and we haven't given her anything to do. We have to get her into a shot here. And they hand me this piece of pizza on a stick. Um, and my job was to hit Grover in the face. <laughs> this isn't a character. This is literally a piece of foam pizza on a stick. Um, All these skills you've accumulated <laughs> in so many years. years of training. <laughs> and by God, I can hit Grover on command in the face with a piece of pizza on a stick. That's right. Takes a lot of training. Yeah. Um, but that was, was Aren't you it, glad you started young with your baby? I am. I am, you know. Getting getting that that sense of specific gravity as it right. slid down his face and then suddenly dropped away. Yeah, it was uh, it was one of the highlights of my career. That's, it actually was just because I was there and it was fun. Um, that's hilarious. It was, so. it was also yeah. It was like 20 years of training to do this. Now, I did, as I mentioned earlier, want to talk a little bit about world building, but in all forms of storytelling, because you do, you mm. know, a couple of forms, I imagine it to be very different, the world building in writing fiction, than in creating stories with puppets. Or is it not different? Do you find yourself employing similar methods with different tools, perhaps? Um, thank you for recognizing that it, it's it might not actually be different um it is it is very similar actually in fact when i am designing a show i find that my urge to write uh almost completely drops away i can perform and write um but designing and writing use exactly the same part of my brain and and it is it is the puzzle solving part with both puppetry and fiction the things that I'm looking for are trying to find the best tools with which to tell the story. And that, that's not just, um, oh, what characters am I going to use, but how all the pieces connect to each other. Right. And, and also what aesthetic design choices are going to, to create the mood that I want in the reader. With both theater and, and, and fiction, and, and I actually also think art, one of the things that I'm trying to do is I, I have I have a specific mood and emotion in my head that I want the reader to experience. Now, just because I have that specific mood and, and emotion does not necessarily mean the reader is going to experience that. But if I want them to, then I have to make choices to, to have them have that same experience. And a lot of the choices that you make actually wind up being exactly the same just as you say slightly different tools um one of the easiest ways to 
to, to talk about that is um, is actually uh, body language, which is, is less about world building, but it, it's a, a very concrete example. Um, and it's one of the ones that translates directly. In puppetry, we have aggressive, passive, and regressive motion. So aggressive motion is anything that you want to engage with further. So you know how you lean towards someone when they're saying something interesting? Right. That, that in puppetry speak is aggressive. And regressive are things you don't want to engage with. Uh, so again, you know, sometimes when someone is talking, you find yourself leaning back in your chair, crossing your arms, that pull away. Um, that's that's a regressive motion. So with a puppet, I can say, you know, what did you say and have the puppet lean towards someone to express interest? Or I can say, what did you say and have them lean back? And that will express that they are uh, they, they are disinterested or, or right. having some disbelief. With writing, I can do, you know, what did you say? She leaned across the table. So it's still that same exact right. body motion. That's interesting, yeah. Um, and I find that with world building, it's a lot of the same things. That that what I'm trying to do is figure out how all of these pieces connect together. I'm looking at motivation. I'm looking at cause and effect. Uh, all of these things are the same kinds of decisions in both fiction and in puppetry. It's just that they, the, the actual medium that I have to express it in is different. That's really interesting. I didn't think of it. And I genuinely didn't know whether it would be similar or not. Because, well, I know nothing about puppets. Um, but yeah, and, as, you, as, I mean, as you can tell, <laughs> I would like to ask many more questions about puppets. But, you know, you're here as a writer. so. Oh, it's fine. I don't mind actually talking about puppetry as a writer because I feel like there's a lot of things that... Um, and, and, and when I teach puppetry, actually, I will say that I often wind up... Excuse me. When I teach writing... I will say I often use puppetry as a metaphor because it it does make things very clear to writers. So right. even when I'm talking about writing, I don't mind. I often will bring up puppetry on my own spontaneously. And what about voice work? That's a whole other kind of storytelling, isn't it? Bringing someone else's words to life. Yes. And uh, and and no, all at the same time. Um, it, it, it is different. Um in mostly that my role is different but one of the things about writing that i think a lot of people forget is that writing was created to record the spoken language spoken language came first and then we had writing so my job as an audiobook narrator is to take those written words and convert them back into speech one of the things that I have loved about doing this as a writer is that it has made it abundantly clear to me how important punctuation is and sentence length, word choices. Right. All of these things are make a huge difference in what happens when I'm doing an audiobook narration. Some of the books I have to really struggle and fight to make them sound compelling because the, the the way the the sentences are written um one book and I'm, I'm not going to name it um but one book that i recorded was translated out of spanish and the entire time i was narrating it i felt like the translator had done a disservice to the author because the narrative passages there were sections were just gloriously beautiful but all the dialogue was so leaden and without nuance at all 
And I was fairly certain that that was because of the way the rest of the book was, that that was something that had happened in translation. So I had to really fight to give nuance back to it. Right. Whereas other books like um, Neil Stevenson's uh, Seven Eves, which I just recorded, the he writes some of the longest sentences I have had to record. But his understanding of punctuation and word choice and rhythm are so good that they were some of the easiest sentences I've ever had to record, despite how complex they were, because he knew what each of those pieces of speech did. Right. Uh, so it's it is it is a different skill set, but it it still comes down to an understanding of words and language and what it is that they are trying to produce in the reader or a listener in this case. And it's interesting because, of course, when a writer is writing a book, they're not really writing it thinking about what it'll be like when it's read. But at the same time, reading out your work out loud is really important just for rhythm. Yes. Um, I actually counsel my students these days to, um, to assume that their work will be made into audio. Because the way the market is now, that's a pretty good chance. Uh, it's there's just there are just so many different audio forms. I mean, you know, the fact that we're doing this interview in audio right. rather than print uh, is is an indication of how much people like listening. There's a, a, a very distinct visceral connection from voice. I think so. I, I actually do tell my students to think about it as something that will be read aloud. And are you still part of the Writing Excuses podcast? I mean, how do you I get am. all this done? I assume you just don't sleep. This is my assumption. <laughs> I'm going to go with this. Um, actually, I do only need six hours of sleep, which does help. Well, that's how it. much I get, but I don't think I get as much done, nearly <laughs> as much. I mean, it's, it's quite amazing. It's very impressive. You have a lot of discipline? I must I, ask. Uh, no, um, I am actually really, and my husband, if he were here, would be laughing at you right now. Um, I'm a procrastinator. Um, I, I cannot I, believe this. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm just I, not buying it. Not it, buying it's it. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. You don't have to. So the secret, the secret to looking like you are productive and effective. Right. It's having, um, you know, I, because I have actually been a freelancer my entire life. But the way I have to prioritize is based on uh, what is going to pay the rent and what is due next. Right. But because of that, it means that a lot of times there's something that, that, that I do not begin working on something until it is due next. So I'm frequently working on things at the very last possible minute. Um, the other thing, and, and this is the, the real secret to looking productive and effective, um, is a, a stage trick, which is that you keep a very tight spotlight on when you're juggling all of these balls, and then no one can see that you've dropped them right. because they're in the dark at your feet. So I talk about all the things that I do. I don't right. talk about all the things that I fail at. That's very clever. I'm going to use that. Yes. This is a good trick. Yes. Why yeah, have we told everyone, Mary? What is this? I'm going to have to edit all of this oh, out now. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. No, I mean, I'm uh, super productive all the time. All the time. Uh, yes. Uh, I joke that I use structured procrastination um, to get things done. Hey, whatever works. Yeah. So what's the next big thing you're looking forward to, yours or someone else's? 
oh, next big thing. Um, that's so many things. I, I think actually the, the next big thing that I'm looking forward to um, is not my own book, um, which I am looking forward to coming out, and I'll just plug it quickly because that is what one is supposed to do, and that's Ghost Talkers, and it's World War One, and it comes out in July. But the next big thing that I'm actually looking forward to is the um, – CIFWA's Nebula Conference, which is in May, um, and I'm doing the programming for it. And the reason I'm excited about it is because um, it is structured like a professional convention. It's it's a professional development conference. It's um, it's focused on writers and helping them along with their career and helping them develop, you know, mid-career writers, established writers helping them push where they are. And we don't actually have one of those in science fiction and fantasy right now. Uh, so like world fantasy is often billed as the professional convention, but it, it has the, the panels have focused on theory and, and not so much on uh, practice and craft. Um, so we have, we have an entire programming track, which we're coordinating with um, the Chicago bar association, about uh, legal aspects of being a writer, uh, intellectual property, uh, contracts, copyright issues. Um, and we also have, you know, the uh, expert, uh, ask an expert track. So we have someone coming in from a planetarium to talk about Windstar's attack, which is a look at uh, how stars actually work and how people get them terribly wrong when they're writing about them in fiction. Um, so it's, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, we have things like the moral responsibility of the storyteller. We have a panel of teenagers talking about what it is that they like in YA fantasy and what they read and where they think things are going. So I think it's going to be, I, I'm really excited about it. Uh, there's one question from Charles on Twitter, via Twitter, and he wants to know if we'll see more of Lee the Puppet. I don't know who Lee the Puppet is. Who is Lee the Puppet? <laughs> um, so uh, as we are recording this, um, last night I was in a mood and I pulled out a puppet, uh, Lee, and um, put put the puppet on and had Lee answer questions about publishing. Uh, so that is available on YouTube. I'll, I'll give you the link so that you can watch it if you want to. And yes, yes, I am planning to do more podcasts with Lee and letting this puppet answer publishing questions. Uh, Lee is a little bit irreverent, <laughs> does a lot of cursing. Just as a warning. Just as a warning. Don't think that because it's a puppet, it is safe for for children. Right. It is really not cute, adorable, yes, but drops drops the f bomb kind of all uh, the time. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you. This has been a delight. <laughs>